What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have a special guest, Sally Norton, on the line, and we dive very deep into all things oxalates, plant anti-nutrients, ways to mitigate that, how you can recover from those if you have them. It's just really interesting stuff. I feel like this is definitely the next level deeper into really optimizing your nutrition and, and going beyond just the macronutrients and micronutrients. I have to apologize though i totally messed up the audio my audio on this is just not stellar i accidentally erased the audio and then i had to re-upload from a poor source of audio that i had recorded so please forgive me i felt that it was better to put the information out there rather than just scratch the entire episode so like i said please forgive me for that the information is there the information is great so without further ado sit back relax learn something sally norton Sally Norton, how are you? Oh, fabulous. Great to talk with you. Likewise, likewise. So honestly, I don't know too, too much about you. I actually intentionally do not do a whole lot of research on my guests before I get them on because I want to dive into their backstory. But me personally, I know that that you are the expert when it comes to, to oxalates and just anti-nutrients in plants. And myself and many people within the keto, low-carb, carnivore space, those are all kind of buzzwords right now. So that's that's why I personally am interested in diving deeper into this. But before we get there, I'd love to kind of hear your backstory and what, what got you into the space. Well, the nutrition space I've been in since I was basically in kindergarten, running home and telling my mother what we're supposed to do in terms of what to eat. I've always thought it was smart to protect your health and try to be as strong and productive as you could be. So I, I decided in seventh grade that I would get a degree in nutrition so that I could I didn't have the terms for it as a 12 year old, but I wanted to be able to help people avoid illness. So that's health promotion, right? And I knew I would need a nutrition degree to do that because the science teacher showed us this film strip that said that hot dogs and stuff causes cancer and showed this pile of basically broccoli and other produce and that stuff is supposed to prevent cancer. And I was really enthralled by that idea that that disease could be as simple as what you eat. You just had to know enough about what to eat and you could avoid disease and have a great life. So mm -hmm. that was my, been my thing forever. But mm -hmm. the oxalate space was a complete, uh, you just kind of like putting your brain in a mincer. <laughs> it's like so different from everything I was trained and taught and learned in the fields of public health, nutrition, health promotion, integrative medicine, holistic healing, all the stuff I knew about, it wasn't anywhere in those spaces. And it wasn't in the spaces of the people I would consult for help with my own health. All the acupuncturists and naturopaths and, and functional medicine doctors and chiropractors and you name it, nobody else knew about this either. So no one was helping me for decades of health problems that I finally figured out on my own and with a kind of painful process. It seems like that's a pretty common occurring uh, you know, concept with most people. They they wind up following a certain path and have to wind up and branch out and do their own thing and figure out what works for them as an individual. And they stumble upon something that has this aha, aha effect for them. Uh, just reading your Instagram bio, you said you were a fallen vegetarian. So I, I'm assuming at one point in your life, you felt like going that route was the key to health. Yeah, I was uh, right a uh, freshman in college, maybe. I read Francis Moore LePay's book and went vegetarian based on that book that was going to save the world and the third world worker if we ate, if we combined our grains and beans and ate our proteins that way, so we shouldn't eat meat. And then I was a subscriber to Vegetarian Journal for those eight years. And then I got John Robbins' book, The Diet for a New America, which is a diatribe for veganism. And I thought, okay, I shouldn't be eating this mucus from cow tits and I shouldn't be eating eggs. And so I went vegan and it wasn't long after that, I got bouts of pneumonia and mm. more and more arthritis. I have starting to have trouble walking up and down stairs with my knees and I never put it together for the next eight years. I was vegan. So I had 16 total years of vegetarian eating. That was uh, really a mistake. Did you notice any benefits that came during that 16 year time span? Like did anything positive happen from a health perspective? From a health perspective? 
I wouldn't say so. I, I cannot think of any really other than, you know, just the mindset of, oh, I'm invincible now because I'm eating the right things and I, I can, I'll never get cancer and I'm going to be great. And, you know, and people that I met that had the same mindset, we were like instant friends. And so there was that benefit, but it wasn't helping out my joints, my knees, my back, my energy, my mental focus, my ability to learn and study. None of that. It's strange. I feel like, you know, within the keto community, as an example, I mean, you, you start talking to like-minded people that have similar interests and are studying similar things. And it's like you had this instant bond and that bond, that energy, that momentum, it's like, that's what carries you through any adverse times. So I'm trying not to get caught up in my own echo chamber and think, okay, it's just this, this vibe that's, you know, causing me to have all these, uh, you know, false hopes for keto. But then I like look at actual physical changes that are occurring in myself and others. And there's no way that could be coming from just a, a persona itself. So I feel like that's, in, in my opinion, I'm probably a little biased in saying this, a vegan might not agree, but I feel like in that sense, there's actual physical changes happening when you go towards more of a meat-based diet that you're not really getting with a vegetarian-based diet. Yeah. And, you know, it's very confusing to try to observe yourself and determine the impacts of a diet. This is a very complicated set of factors there. And so it's real easy to convince yourself what you want to believe. And that's what kept people like me with a diet that was not working and unable to see the connection between what we're eating and how horrible we were feeling. So it's really a tricky thing, um, that level of assessment. And so I took great caution with this whole oxalate path for that reason, I was like, oh, well, I'm just one of these special types who get these connective tissue disorders and end up with pain syndromes and autoimmune problems and fatigue that somehow it's this oxalate thing. And I thought it was just me, but it turned out it was my husband and people in the locker room. And like, I started looking around and I realized there's probably millions of people like me who are doing the right thing especially because anyone is really trying for their health, which is a minority of people. In my view, mm -hmm. you know, barely 20% of people are truly, truly making health their big priority in their life and choosing food because they want to be healthy and well in the long run. So, but of that group, all of them believe that vegetables equal health. And it's, you can't see when that's not working for you. For those of us, when you add more vegetable foods and uh, that is high oxalate foods, but no one has that lens. We can't see food as either high or low oxalate because nobody's ever even heard the word. So we don't even know what we're doing to ourselves when we select certain foods and we're blind to the connection between the foods and our chronic health problems. Well, let's do a, a, just a deep dive into oxalates right now. So I mean, for people that have no clue what that is, let's just, I mean, could you kind of flesh that out and give a definition and explain what foods it's in and how it's impacting our bodies? Yeah, so oxalate and oxalates are usually said in the plural because it's a, it's a sort of a family of chemicals. It's a, the chemical itself comes from something called oxalic acid. And this is the main ingredient in a kidney stone and is a, a chelator of minerals. So it, it's highly attracted to minerals that have positive charges. Mm -hmm. Calcium is the favorite one in nature. It comes in this form of oxalic acid bound with calcium or calcium oxalate. So your kidney stones are made primarily of calcium oxalate and your doctor will call it calcium stones. Uh, it's very likely that all, all sorts of pathologic calcifications outside the kidneys involve oxalate but your doctor calls it calcium. But oxalate grabs iron and all kinds of other minerals. It can come in a form that easily changes which mineral it's attracted to, and those are called soluble oxalates. So that's oxalate with sodium or potassium. So potassium oxalate is called soluble oxalate. That is very easily uh, absorbed from foods into the bloodstream. And then when it gets to the bloodstream, it much prefers calcium and will start just bonding with calcium or calcium and, and it seek each other out and starts pulling calcium out of the blood and same with iron and other minerals in the body. So it's a caustic, absorbable, 
tiny, tiny molecule, only has two carbons, that gets into your body readily, more readily than we have believed in science, for sure. And then starts messing with your mineral metabolism and starts stressing out your liver, your vascular system, because it has to travel from your food into your blood, to your liver, through your bloodstream, up to your heart, lungs, heart, and through general circulation. So your entire vascular system, especially the arterial side of it, is exposed to oxalate after meals. Gotcha, gotcha. And there's like specific meals that are higher in oxalates than others? For sure. It's, oxalate is, is easy to make in nature. Even clouds will make it and it'll come down as part of the acid rain in polluted cities. And so plants have a pretty easy time of manufacturing it. And one of the ways it does, it makes vitamin C first and turns vitamin C into oxalate, which can also happen in the liver. So if people are into heavy, heavy vitamin C supplementation. Some percent of people are more prone than others to turning that into oxalate in the body. The body does make some. So there's a small amount being made as your metabolism as a byproduct, but then we're eating it and adding to that, way adding to that with foods like spinach, Swiss chard, beets and beet greens, the nuts, especially almonds, peanuts, chocolate, potatoes, certain spices like turmeric and black pepper, certain fruits like blackberries, kiwi, clementines, figs. Um, a lot of those kind of terra chips, kind of roots like cassava, sweet potato, beetroot, those are, that turn into chip, those are high in oxalate. A lot of the beans, black beans are high. Rhubarb is sort of a famous one that's high. Chia seeds, hemp seeds, things like that. So the plants make it often for seeds. Seeds, anything that is a seed in nature is most likely to have oxalate in it. And then a limited number of greens and a certain subset of the fruits and a lot of the potatoes, all the forms of potatoes are pretty high. So like someone listening that has heard those food types and automatically associate those foods with health foods, you know, <laughs> antioxidants, high in good fibers, high in all the things that people have been told that they need, is, is the benefit that they would potentially be getting from those foods, does that outweigh the negative of the oxalates or is it such that you're better off just avoiding them entirely? Well, that's certainly the argument of sort of the oxalate deniers because oxalate has really been off our radar. It was in the news in the 1930s and 40s when they were doing uh, experiments and proclaiming these high oxalate foods as something we should be careful about and be aware of. And then it got lost in the noise of other priorities in nutrition. And so now as we're sort of rediscovering the importance of being aware of plant toxins, especially oxalate, because it is the most likely plant toxin to accumulate and create chronic long-term damage to your body, some of which may not be fully reversible. Um, you can't say, we don't have the science because we haven't bothered to really study this in any serious way beyond the kidneys. Kidney stones we know a lot about. We spent many millions of dollars studying kidney stones and we're still pretending that we don't know that potatoes, peanuts, and spinach are a major cause of kidney stones. So if even that's controversial, these broader effects on the connective tissue, the vascular system, the immune system, the nervous system have not been well studied, so they're not codified. So it's very easy to say, well, we have this current enthusiasm for phytonutrients, which is sort of a fake term because they're not essential nutrients, but there's these plant chemicals that are getting heralded as having these benefits that you mentioned, like polyphenols and things like that. And actually, the conclusion that those themselves are beneficial to our health is not a done deal and is themselves controversial. But in a commercial society that wants to instantly turn a positive idea into a marketable product, it's, uh, there's a lot of not listening going on <laughs> in terms of balance, thinking about costs and benefits of supposed health benefits of these for example, vegetables that are now the, the queens of health is fresh leafy greens from the produce department, which is really should be a controversial idea, but it's not. So, so the main, the main damage done by these oxalates is basically like they're crystalline in structure and they just are abrasive to anything they're coming into contact with, which is basically flowing through the entire body based off of our consumption, right? Well, 
you're talking about a mechanical effect or is this a physical scraping or damaging, but there's also an electromagnetic effect because it's a charged molecule and it depolarizes membranes, which is like killing a cell because cells are built on membranes, the outer membrane that defines the cell itself, and then inner membranes that define the various organelles in the cell, especially the mitochondria, which is a double membrane organelle that keeps you alive. And the it's the actual change in charge on one side of the membrane or the other, one side's positive, one side's negative, that forms a battery. And that battery effect of those polarized polarized membranes is what's driving life itself. If you kill off all your polarized membranes, you stop life. So <laughs> this is what oxalate does because of its electromagnetic tendencies. It depolarizes membranes and distresses cells and causes them to get leaky. And that, that leakiness causes the immune system to get worried that the cells are under attack, maybe bacterial or whatever, but they see the cell damage and they come in. And so oxalate starts stimulating immune responses over and over and over again because we're constantly consuming this stuff when our potato chips, fries, chocolate, and nut habits. And this this is found naturally in the foods. This isn't like due to processing by humans, right? This is just one of the protective yeah. mechanisms within the plants themselves. Yeah, because see, plants don't have feet and legs and claws and teeth to defend themselves. They have to be stuck and make do where they are. They get they germinate in one place and they stay there their whole life. So their whole defense strategy, their whole philosophy of how to survive on the planet is quite different than the animal kingdom. And they have to be chemical factories. They're constantly being pressured by weather, funguses, viruses, insects, other predators, and herbivores. So they, they wouldn't be here if all of those other organisms could just have a happy time eating them without any opposition from the plants. The plants wouldn't still exist. And these oxalates are their primary mechanism for defense oh i think plants are way smarter than to have one one self-defense program <laughs> they have probably thousands of chemicals they're using for various forms of self-defense they're very sophisticated those of us who are gardeners have great reverence for plants because it's amazing what they can endure and, and come back like a tiny piece of root can come back to a whole new plant so oxalate though is especially ubiquitous in the plant kingdom although evenly distributed. And it seems to have like at least seven roles for plants in terms of how it's helping their physiology and their lifespan. So one of the roles in seeds is that it uses the oxalic acid to pantry calcium. So it needs to store calcium in the seed so it can use it as a catalyst for running enzymes that drive germination. Um, and so a way to keep a lot of calcium around is to store it as calcium oxalate. It also helps them defend themselves from calcium in the soil, which can be toxic to plants when it's too high. So they just start sequestering, they call it, sequestering calcium, sort of setting it aside and putting it in these chunky blocks in order to keep it out of the plant metabolism in general. They also construct very specific shapes of these crystals, the intended shapes. One of the shapes is called a raphide. And the rapide is a double-ended toothpick, very tiny sliver that's very pointy on each end. And in nature, there's at least four different designs of points. Some of them look like a devil's point, and they have all these different elaborate shapes of points that are intentional. The ones that we tend to see in the food plants are just a simple point, like on a toothpick. Mm -hmm. But even within that one shape, this pointy needle-like toothpick has these different designs. So it's, the crystals are kind of cool and they impress the people on the other side of the microscope who are studying them. They uh, say excited things about how beautiful they are. What is, the, is the correlation for the amount of oxalate absorbed by humans, you know, is that correlated to the amount of calcium that we're consuming because it binds to the calcium. Like if we have a low calcium diet, are we absorbing inherently less oxalates or is it more not related? We're more if there's less calcium? Right. More. Yeah. Excellent question. If you go on a low calcium diet, which happens when people go from vegetarian to vegan, they'll cut out the dairy products. They'll lower their calcium intake significantly. And to replace that, they might increase their 
cashews and almonds and nuts because nuts have, was always the original substitute for meat when this started to become popular in the 1850s to eat no flesh foods. Uh, nuts were the first meat substitute and that happens with vegan diets. It's a cheese substitute. It's a this and that. So you start using a lot of nuts. You way go up on your oxalate and other plant anti-nutrients, by the way, and go down in calcium. So calcium is a binder of oxalate. See, the plants use it to bind calcium and the soluble oxalate, the potassium oxalate in your food if there's a lot of calcium in that meal, if you had cheese on your salad, for example, there's gonna be more calcium available to bind with that soluble oxalate. The more of it's bound, the lower absorption into the bloodstream. You can't completely correct for that though. There's always some degree of absorption of both the soluble, so some degree of it will stay soluble no matter how much calcium you throw at a high oxalate meal. And a small percentage of calcium oxalate still gets into the bloodstream because a lot of it is in these nanocrystals that are smaller than cells themselves and can pass in between cells or and so on is is much of this oxalate is that passed on like if if i'm eating a lot of beef and the beef is eating a lot of grass like is that is that pr processed you know upwind and going into the meat as well or no no generally not um First of all, the beef we eat is only two years old and it hasn't had a long time to accumulate. If the cattle are eating so much oxalate that they could be bioaccumulating at the age of two years, then they're probably quite sick on oxalates. And they get, there's various names for these illnesses that the oxalate poisoned uh, grazing ruminants will get. If they're stuck in an area where they only have high oxalate weeds to eat, they'll get sick too. And they, have a great defense system because they are they are ruminants which means really what they eat is not so much the grass what they eat is dead bacteria right mm -hmm. because when they eat they're feeding grass to the bacteria in the rumen the rumen does this fermentation which is a process that bacteria do to break down the inedible cell cellulose and so a lot of what the animals are eating are the products of and the dead bodies of the bacteria, not so much the cellulose. Right, right. So it, it seems like the carnivores are coming out ahead on this one because they don't have to worry about any of these oxalates. No, they don't. And they don't have to worry about oxalates, except the chances are they weren't born carnivore. They haven't been doing carnivore for very long, that they have a history of potato chips, French fries, and peanut butter. And it's possible that bioaccumulation of oxalate has occurred in their own bodies and that once you stop eating it, the body wants to unload this history of oxalate. So you still have a high oxalate problem if your historical diet was included a lot of high oxalate foods on a regular basis. So the cool thing, for those of us who know we've been sickened by oxalates, more and more people are coming on board recognizing this is what's going on with them because they suddenly change to an all meat diet and their body starts clearing oxalate and they start to see these responses, which are not always very nice. It can be quite unpleasant to be clearing out oxalate. I was scrolling on your Instagram prior to jumping on this podcast with you. And there was one image of these oxalate crystals that people were just excreting through their skin. It looked like. Yes. <laughs> what, what's going on there? <laughs> So that is the extreme version of what we call oxalate dumping. That term came from Susan Owens, who's been studying this. She's a sulfur researcher, and she's been working with autistic families for 15 years, maybe. And she came up with the idea of dumping, which is a high level of oxalate clearing, when the body is really sort of mega clearing. And, and sometimes that's coming from an abrupt event in lifestyle, like suddenly going, no plants is pretty abrupt metabolically. You're asking the body to turn on a dime in lots of different ways with very little adaptation phase. But other things can cause a sudden rush of release. And so the body has two choices. It can just push it out to the latest port, which might be your skin, you know, the glands in your skin, the sweat glands and whatever or have to dissolve all that old deposits back down to nanocrystal and ions, run it back through your vascular system in the bloodstream, ask the kidneys to pick it up and excrete it, make it go through your bladder and come out in the toilet bowl as sort of cloudy urine or 
whatever, that's pretty toxic process to sort of dig up these old Superfund sites, dissolve them down, carry them through the vascular system and excrete them through the urine. So if the body's like, oh, can't do that, we'll just push it out. And people tell me they have crystals coming out of their eyes, their eyelids. I see pictures all the time of funny rashes and a couple of people sending me pictures of sudden rashes where the, each little corpuscle in the rash is pushing out a small little crystal right out of the skin. Now that I consider fairly um, extreme or unusual. That's not the typical kind of oxalate clearing reaction. But if that is happening, you know that the system is in trouble, that they've, they've got something serious going on. That, that makes it so painfully obvious. You can't deny the truth of the crystals in the rash. I mean, it's just happening. Um, whereas other symptoms might be more like malaise, neurological problems where you start getting kind of neurotoxic and clumsy, you start not being able to remember things or start getting a stomach ache or start not digesting your fat. There's all kinds of symptoms that can happen when oxalate starts moving back out of tissues in the body. And those crystals popping out of skin is just the mega dramatic one that's visual enough that you can make the case in a photograph. I feel like people just are not aware of the fact that the body can hold on to these things as, as it does. I mean, like not even talking about oxalates. I had a, a firefighter here the other day to work out with me and he was talking about one guy at a station that uh, was in a fire years back and he was, there's a lot of chemicals in the building he was in mm. and he went into the sauna like, you know, years later that he had access to a sauna and he started sweating out and his skin was turning blue because it was excreting mm. all these chemicals that his body had held onto for years. And like, I didn't know that was even possible. And I'm hearing this about oxalates right now, you know, you eating a high vegetarian diet for years, then you, you know, several years later go carnivore and your body starts dumping these. Like that just blows my mind that the body can harbor this stuff for so long and then excrete it all at once like that. Well, the body is so amazing, you know, and it has to do some form of self-defense when you're being overloaded with toxins that the liver doesn't, can't do it all at one time. The kidneys can't do it all. They have a capacity. And the problem with oxalate is modern diet was routinely exceeding that capacity. So since we're just routinely doing it willy-nilly, the body just quietly tries to cope in the background and tries to not give you any symptoms at all. Just like any other disease, there's not a lot of symptoms with hypertension or cancer until it's the end. And you, so you could take yourself to a pretty extreme degree of toxicity and never know it. And then your body finally gets an, a chance to unload and it will because the body's smart enough to say, oh my gosh, opportunity at last. And it wants to unload stuff. So um, yeah, there's something else you mentioned there I was going to comment on, but truly we're so... I think over-optimistic about being surrounded by chemicals, whether they're natural ones from plants or other ones like those horrible things the firefighter was exposed to. We expect our body to just process no matter what volume, what variety, what constancy is there. We're really not being aware of our capacities being exceeded, but that's what's happening. Yeah, it's 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 very very eye opening. What what is your take on, um, like, are you kind of more towards the whole very strict carnivore approach, or what do you personally like to implement with with regards to consumption of vegetables? Well, I had I, I when I was vegan, I was slow cooking beans, and I now I realize in retrospect that's probably why I developed irritable bowel syndrome and bowel problems and. By the time my, my whole life was falling apart with this illness that I didn't know was happening, I had endometriosis and I have endometrial damage on my colon and just like years of abuse from my vegan diet. And so I was concerned about my persistent GI function and tendency to constipation and that. So I weaned myself all the way off vegetables completely a couple of years ago where I was basically eating coconut, lemon juice to help relieve the oxalate damage and meat, basically pork, beef, and certain kinds of seafood like canned sardines and anchovies and shrimp and things. So I had a pretty simple diet for the last couple of years. And that really helped me with the bowel function and helped to take my bowel recovery much 
to a better place. And I find that with a lot of my clients, we have to get off the plant foods in order to finish the, or at least keep the bowel function good. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever get a complete recovery after you've destroyed your tissues and your microbiome, you know. Um, so for me, I had to go pretty much carnivore. And last April, I went on a full carnivore experiment. And because I'm oxalate damaged, I believe that's why I can't stay 100% carnivore as much as I love the fun and convenience of that. So I have to add in some carbohydrates to keep my self functioning. But I think that the whole idea of vegetables has been a fairly modern thing. And the current belief that vegetables are absolutely essential to long term well being and bowel health is so laced with all kinds of original biases and presumptions that we've never tested the question about whether we need them at all. It's, it's funny because I'm, I consider myself a pretty healthy guy and I'm, I'm carnivore-esque. Like I, I'm not hardcore straight carnivore, uh, but I'll, every once in a while I'll get the hankering for some type of vegetables, whether it be like, you know, sauteed Brussels sprouts cooked in bacon grease or something like that. Like just something to mix it up the texture. But mm-hmm. I've never once in my entire life experienced a positive effect from like a performance standpoint with an increase in vegetable uptake. Like I just, I've not noticed any inherent benefit from it personally. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd have to test something like that many times to really be sure of what's happening. Cause there's so many background processes that your body's doing for circadian rhythms or whatever. And the things you don't have any way to know what's happening because the body's sophisticated, but yeah, vegetables have been very important for color, variety, texture, uh, flavor enhancement. I mean, they do a lot for the culinary advancement of a plate of food. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've become quite dependent on them to, to keep real food interesting in a world that's full of donuts and cookies and crackers everywhere you look. Right. So to keep a plate of normal food, like real food, interesting, a bunch of beautiful colors and textures and flavors helps with that. So we're, I think, doubly dependent on them like emotionally to stay on track with eating real food. Um, But we've been cajoled economically to eat produce and eat this wider variety of foods for 150 years for more economic reasons than anything else. And health has always been kind of a fig leaf over the top of that. Is there any way to like test, like, is it like a blood test that one can get to, to term, determine what their personal level of oxalates are? Is there anything like well, that? Well, if you just think about for a minute, these women and, and people, it's not just women either, by the way, uh, the people who are having crystals pop out of their bodies from the surface, out of their eyes and skin, the blood has nothing to do with what the foreskin and the other tissues have been doing to keep the blood happy. You see, because without a happy bloodstream, a happy set of kidneys, and a really well-functioning heart, no other tissue in the body has a prayer, right? So they do a lot of sacrificial absorption of these chemicals and storing and holding without complaint, to the, for the most part. Um, and so it's not going to hang around in the plasma. It just doesn't. Even people who are really really sick with oxalates their plasma levels of oxalate vary in a very small range because it just you can't allow that much oxalate in the vascular system because you get spasms you get you get electrolyte collapses and the pacemaker of the heart wouldn't work anymore because the electrolyte mayhem that it would cause gotcha so is there any way to test it all like a skin sample the um gold metal or the you know the gold standard test for oxalate accumulation it's called oxalosis it's technically a chip of bone off of the hip bone uh, and they're only going to do that test if you're like <laughs> kind of an end of life care you don't have to be really really sick for them to do that test and even that test is going to be inaccurate because it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's got oxalate in the chip of in that one chip in that hip bone Maybe it's all in the skin in that person or somewhere else. Like, it's so idiosyncratic where and how the body can or has to or get stuck with oxalate accumulation that there's no one sure place in the body to go for it. I think a skin punch would be 
more accessible and doable kind of test. Um, but you would need many big trials. You'd have to test the skin of a few thousand people to be able to say, and then be able to correlate it with some other objective measure, which we haven't established yet in science. So it's, it's so underdeveloped, this, the science of even recognizing that this oxalate accumulation is happening. It's just not even got any funding and doesn't have any good brains going after it right now in science. So we don't have a way to test it. So are there any like telltale signs that somebody that's eating a high you know, vegetable intake could look for and assume or should they just kind of try and go through a, a period of removing or titrating their vegetable intake down and just taking note of any changes they notice? Well, you know, you're talking about using the diet as sort of treatment for problems that have already occurred, which is ultimately in the long run, long run essential to do. And we don't really have enough science to say exactly how you do that safely. So that's a whole other big conversation. But then the piece that's missing in that question is the idea about if it's a silent disease and you can't tell what's happening, you could have no symptoms. But if you have a history of pigging out on these high oxalate foods, which in America, some people it means potato chips and fries, other people it's the health foods like the spinach smoothies and the fruits and the, or the peanut butter as kids. Some kids will only eat peanut butter sandwiches for a whole year. You know how that is, how we get into these little things with food. So if you have a history of eating those foods, chances are you've overwhelmed your body's capacity routinely and chances are you need to back off on those foods and do it gradually as a prevention strategy so it doesn't get any worse. But you know, there's a lot of potential trickiness because some people could be quite sick with oxalates and there's no outward sign of it. However, if you're wanting to gauge like who's most likely suffering from oxalate problems, the old original diagnosis of this was uh, began in the 1850s. And for about 70 years, we had a disease called the oxalic acid diathesis. And that disease was defined as somebody who had digestive problems and either rheumatological problems or neurological problems. So rheumatological is joint pain, joint inflammation, muscle pain, achiness. Neurological symptoms can be mood, it can be thinking, memory, it could be coordination, it could be sleep. Uh, sleep disorders are really common with those of us with oxalate problems. Connective tissue disorders are very common. Urinary tract problems like urinary urgency, having to get up at night a lot to pee, um, occasional incontinence even. Um, irritable bladder where you just like have to pee and it's only a tablespoon of pee. <laughs> that kind of stuff is definitely a sign that you're urinary tract is unhappy. If you've ever had kidney stones, there's at least an 80% chance that the kidney stone is made of oxalate. And so that right there, that's telling you your kidneys are overwhelmed with oxalate. So that's enough. If you had a kidney stone, if you have urinary tract problems, if you had digestive problems, if you have leaky gut, you're a high absorber of oxalate. So voila, you've been absorbing too much oxalate. So it's kind of common problems are reason enough to start paying attention to the fact that smoothies and some of these keto bombs that are full of chocolate, which is another one of these high oxalate foods, um, and almonds and peanuts, those things can get people into trouble if they start relying on them. So what are, what are some good outlets for people that are, like if someone's not going to go just hardcore strict carnivore, what, what are some foods that could be a, a possible outlet for them that are going to be very low or non-existent in oxalates? Yeah, so the plant foods, I mean, all the animal foods are low in oxalates. So, you know, you like you asked before, even though the cow might have eaten the oxalate in the field, that food is not high in oxalates. So the, all the animal foods are fine, but because you don't want to be strict carnivore, there's a lot of plant foods that are pretty low in oxalates. So if oxalate is our main kind of filter for picking foods, you've got all the lettuces are low, most of the cabbage family vegetables are low, which includes watercress and some unusual ones. There's corn salad or mosh, there's arugula. And then there's turnips and kohlrabi and cabbage is really low. Dino kale is low, although green curly kale is really high. So kale confuses people. Uh, blueberries aren't too bad. Pineapple's kind of medium. Coconut is quite low, which is a nice keto fruit slash nut. 
Um, let's see what else. Herbal teas are low, unlike regular tea and green tea. And white white um, pepper is low. Peppermint, cayenne pepper, Frank's hot sauce, mustard, sugar, tarragon, thyme. There's quite a few ways to get flavor, texture, color, excitement on the plate. Red peppers are fine. Roasted red peppers make a nice garnish, or you can make a sauce out of them. Ripe avocados are low, unlike firm avocados. The more unripe they are, the higher the oxalate, but apparently as they ripen, they become lower in oxalate. Is there a way to prepare the foods to, to minimize the absorption of the oxalates? Like, I don't know, cook them, boil them, strain them with some kind of calcium mix so that it leaches out some of the oxalate or is that right right so water does help leach the soluble oxalates so those are not the crystals but the soluble oxalates can be leached in boiling water if you boil things long enough so if you boil broccoli you know as far as you dare take it before it's complete mush you can reduce the oxalate by a third which is significant dropping or maybe even two-thirds it might depend on the ph of the water i don't know that we know what factors if you could add calcium to the water, if that would help or not, and, and how that affects the other nutrients, I don't know. Uh, too much alkalinity in boiling water of vegetables can destroy some of the B vitamins, so to be careful with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, like, for you personally, do you know of any inherent benefits that people would need to look to plants for, as opposed to just eating, like, a carnivore-esque style of uh, you know, food consumption. Is there something that needs to be derived from a plant or supplemented? Like if somebody just wants to say, okay, screw the oxalates, I'm not going to eat anything with oxalates. <laughs> like anything that would be deficient? Well, you know, I sort of have to say we're in this wonderland of now being willing to experiment with a plant-free diet, which we haven't been willing to do for several hundred years. So um, we still don't know all the answers. And what we do see now is a lot of genetic variability between people and a lot of personal history that has changed our metabolic health. So I think some of us that have oxalate problems have permanently damaged our mitochondrial function, the enzymes that produce energy and produce the ATP that runs life we're in trouble with that and we don't do well some of us on you know just mat meat which is just fat and protein and no carbs so some people cannot do a zero carb diet for the long term and a lot of people you know inherently by the human design ought to be able to do that but we have our own either genetic differences or just personal history differences that have changed our metabolism enough that we're now dependent on some of the carbohydrates from plants. The other chemicals in plants, obviously we need B vitamins, we need minerals. Unfortunately, minerals and vitamins from plants have a low bioavailability. And that's partly because some of the other chemicals in plants interrupt our ability to access those nutrients, mm -hmm. including just the basic proteins and calorie bearing elements in plants. You have to be able to have your enzymes access them break them down, absorb them, and utilize them. But polyphenols, for example, can harm those enzymes as well as the enzymes that get harmed inside cells. Enzymes that should be functional in the digestive process can be inhibited by plant chemicals, including, you know, and then there's fiber itself. Fiber is this sticky stuff that hangs on to nutrients, but it also can hold on to some of the anti-nutrients too. There's some thought that the fiber helps hold some of these crystals of oxalate and maybe even some of the soluble oxalate holds on to it a little bit so you don't absorb quite as much. So there might be some benefit in fiber holding back some of the oxalate, but it hasn't worked that well for those of us who got damaged eating normal, whole, healthy, organic foods for decades. So, you know, there's not a good answer to that. I, I'm very much of the ancestral line of thought. We were hunter-gatherers. We lived through winters we lived on icebergs we managed to get by on hunting as a primary hunting and fishing obviously and collecting bugs etc is really major ways to survive and thrive mm -hmm. wild and 
without central air and air conditioning, <laughs> we could do that on, on that kind of diet. I don't think we were real concerned about broccoli and spinach in the day, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely tend to gravitate that direction as well. I, I don't feel, like I said earlier, I, mean, I, don't, I don't feel any benefit uh, from the plants. I feel like if you've got a good quality source of animal-based foods, uh, you know, with the right ratio of fats to proteins, I feel like that's going to solve the vast majority of most people's issues. Um, but there are these outliers that have just a damaged metabolism, damaged mitochondrial function yeah. like you're talking about. So I, I haven't thought about it in those terms before, which makes sense. Well, another thing that goes into the question is how much we've changed our expectation about when a plant's ready to eat. You know, the adaptation to a plant-centric diet that came with the agricultural revolution came because of various technologies of learning how to soak and prepare and leach and grind and ferment and do a tons of processes to these seeds and stuff that we were gathering in ample quantities to turn them into a major part of the diet. You know, it took a lot of processing to, to get them, make them safe to eat. And we've dropped a lot of that. We just you know, we grow them, we send them to a factory, the factory turns it into flour, the flour gets sprayed with B vitamins, and then we turn it into bread. And that's a totally different way of handling these plant foods and preparing them for ingestion than we did way back when we first learned to ferment, store, grind, you know, do all these things to make them safer to eat. Yeah, we have definitely butchered how the plants were originally you know, expect to go through a human lifespan. Uh, with regard to the processing, does that have a pretty drastic effect on the oxalate absorption within those plants or is that mitigated quite a bit? Well, you know, it's other plant anti-nutrients respond pretty well to the, say the soaking, which helps get rid of phytates, phytic acid. Um, and if you use clay, you can help lower the heavy metals and things. You use bentonite clay and soak them and store them. And then you let them ferment and bubble. And then you make like injera or some kind of fermented sourdough, something or other. That works for those other chemicals, some of them. But it doesn't seem to do much as far as we know. I mean, this is another area that deserves a few million dollar grants to really look at, to see what happens with these various high oxalate foods like the teff that becomes injera through fermentation? Like, is it is injera significantly lower in oxalate versus the teff cereal that Westerners tend to buy and cook as a cereal? Um, we don't really have the research to say. It's really sad that we're not more curious about all of that. What about mercury? Like, I look at you know what the equivalent would be in the animal-based world, and I feel like mercury is probably you know, mercury and like seafood products, I feel like that's probably the closest thing. Yeah, that's big. That's a big problem. Is there a way to test for that or, or just, I guess, mitigate that by, you know, consuming, you know, non-predatory fish? Yeah, I think it's really important to try to pick the little fish. That's why I do canned anchovies, these little tiny, you know, that lower on the on the uh, food chain because the aquatic food chain is where we're really prone to this accumulation of toxins and and so you really see that terribly in historical populations like in northern alaska who in the past lived on seal and whale fat they were major parts of the diet but those are high on the aquatic chain and those are very full of not only mercury but also pcbs and there was an article that came out about 20, 25 years ago that said that the breast milk of native Alaskans who were using traditional foods was basically not only unsafe for babies, but the equivalent of like super fun. I mean, really toxic. Like our breasts, those of us who eat high in the aquatic food chain can be loading up mercury and PCBs and passing that on to the newborn babies. It is wild. I mean, I feel like so many people don't eat. I mean, they, they, they don't even think about the food they're consuming, much less like where it's been derived from, like what its effect is on the body. So like when you really start diving down the rabbit hole of really upping your game with regard to nutrient density and quality and sourcing, it's, it's eye-opening to see what all has an impact. Yeah, and it's actually a healing path for the human family to start saying we care about 
the whole ecosystem that supports our well-being that we're we are invested in it and we ought to care and then we start opening our eyes and making better choices it opens up new economic opportunities for communities it opens up new possibilities for lowering the you know the problems with premature babies and the problems with autism and you know all these things where people get started in life on a wrong foot because their their ancestors their parents and grandparents didn't know enough to pay attention to these issues yeah totally totally well what's what's got you excited like what are you working on now going forward well um i just recently put out my 181 low oxalate recipes so that's available as a pdf on my website and that's great for newcomers to oxalate like wanting what the heck to do with the turnip or people who are carnivores who don't know how to cook anymore to, for their non-carnivore family and friends or people who are a lot of carnivore but want occasionally to, to do something different or on a special meal kind of expand their options so that's available now i was recently featured in an article in a magazine called what doctors don't tell you and i'm trying to knuckle down and get my book written because i've got a contract for a book on this problem. Nice. Well, I will definitely eagerly await that book. I'm going to have to dive into because I feel like this is just a, a new frontier in the health space. And from what I've learned from you just this far in the conversation, it sounds like Popeye had it all wrong. <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> yeah, he was an instrument of trying to get people to get iron in the kind of depression era when it seemed like people couldn't afford meat and there was a real problem with malnourishment and they thought that you could get the iron out of spinach, but there isn't that much iron in spinach and it's pretty much bound up as iron oxalate, so it's no good whatsoever. And you said that turnips were pretty good, right? Yep. Because I'm a huge fan, like just being from the South, I'm a huge fan of those you know, greens, but I'll, I'll definitely swap out the spinach for turnips. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. great. I, I certainly do appreciate the time. I've learned a ton. Where's the, what's, what's the website link and your social? It's, my website is sallyknorton.com, sallyknorton.com. And I'm sknorton on Instagram. So that's where you found those pictures of the crystals popping out of skin. I recommend everybody check those out because they're, they are eye opening. It's true. Yeah, I mean, I I did not even know what I was looking at when I saw it. I had to read the caption. It was just eye-opening for sure. I'm going to have nightmares of broccoli. <laughs> it's going to be bad. <laughs> well, so I, I definitely do appreciate the time. Um, definitely keep in touch and let me know when that book comes out, and I will share that as well. Thank you. Great Thank to you. have time with you. Take care. You too. <laughs>